Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Books in Psychology podcast, a channel of the New Books Network. I am Eugenio Duarte, your host, as well as a practicing psychoanalyst and clinical psychologist in Miami. Today, my guest is Hope Edelman. She's here today to speak with me about her book, The Aftergrief, Finding Your Way Along the Long Arc of Loss, published in 2020 by Ballantine Books. I'd like to tell you a little bit about my guest, Hope Edelman is the author of eight nonfiction books, including the bestsellers Motherless Daughters, as well as Motherless Mothers, and of the memoir The Possibility of Everything. Her original essays have appeared in many anthologies, including The Bitch in the House, Behind the Bedroom Door, and Goodbye to All That. Her book Motherless Daughters was named a New York Times Notable Book of the Year, and Edelman's work has also won her a Pushcart Prize for Creative Nonfiction, the recipient of the 2020 Community Educator Award from the Association for Death Education and Counseling. She is a certified Martha Beck life coach and facilitates motherless daughters retreats and workshops all over the world. She lives and works in Los Angeles and Iowa City. Hope, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Eugenio. It's really a pleasure to be here. You dedicate this book to Liz Pearl, who died in 2015. Do you mind telling us who she was and why you dedicate this book to her? Thank you so much for asking that. You know, I've done a ton of podcasts for this book. No one's asked me that. And I'm so glad to be able to honor her this way. Liz Pearlie was the original editor of Motherless Daughters. She was the acquiring editor back in 1992 at Addison Wesley Publishing House, which was the first publisher of Motherless Daughters. And she lost her mom when she was young to breast cancer. And Liz and I became, we had a mentorship, a mentor-mentee relationship, but also a friendship over the years. Um, she's one of the smartest, most creative, most brilliant women I've ever met. And uh, yeah, she passed away in 2015 from breast cancer herself. It was a terrible loss in the publishing community. But I feel her fingerprints on all of my work, but particularly this book, because I think of this book as like motherless daughters for grownups. And I so wish that she had been here to be able to learn about it. And as I was writing it and also see the, the finished product. I imagine that everything you had to say about grief for this book may have been shaped by the grief that you were going through over the loss of Liz. Well, a bit, I mean, um, let me think about this. I sold the book in 2016, so it was really the year after Liz died. But I think this book was informed more by the fact that I was going through a divorce as I was writing it. I see. A different kind of grief, but a grief nonetheless. Sure. And I think that, in a way, made the book richer because I was right there feeling a lot of the emotions with the people I was writing about and the individuals that I had interviewed. So I like to start always by clarifying some basic ideas before delving into the specific concepts that you cover in the book. Your book is about grief, but what exactly is grief? 
I think a lot of people think that it's synonymous with crying or emoting, but how would you define it? I would define grief as the acute phase right after some, some strong attachment has been disrupted. Um, and that doesn't necessarily have to be the loss of a person, though the after grief, this book is very much about the death of a loved one. But we can experience grief after the loss of a job or the loss of a home or the loss of a pet, for sure. It doesn't have to be a person. Uh, but I think of it as those, you know, that acute phase where we're feeling the despair and hopelessness and lack of control and maybe sleeplessness. We think we're going crazy, you know, because our brain on grief doesn't function the way that it functions normally. We may have um, trouble getting back into a daily rhythm. Um, we have intense periods of longing, deep sadness. And that acute phase can last anywhere from, you know, a couple of weeks to two years for individuals, depending on who died and how close you were to them, how they died, your age, your temperament, your family communication patterns, your degree of social support. But I was looking for what grief looks like 10, 20, 30 years down the road. I just passed the 40th anniversary of my mother's death when I was 17, 1981. And I still think about her all the time. And I can still tear up sometimes talking about her death or the aftermath. But I don't think of that as grief per se. I think grief is a terrific term for what I just, just described as the acute phase. But we had no name for what comes after grief when you know the echo effects, the ripple effects over the years, when it keeps when we have resurgences of emotion, which are completely normal. They happen around anniversary events. They happen around life transitions. We miss that person who's not there. Something reminds us of them. We get new information about how they died, maybe, or how they lived. And so the after grief is an attempt to create a vocabulary to talk about that. And I think of grief being about up until the first maybe two years. By that point, most of us are transitioning into what's going to come next. It's when we maybe we don't wake up every morning and it's the first thing we think of, or we feel that we're able to laugh and have the capacity for joy again. And I think that next phase that we move into, where we have those echo or ripple effects throughout the rest of our lives, is what I call the after grief. But how did you come to realize that it that period after grief has ended needed a name and needed to be studied and and written about. In other words, by giving it a name, you're implicitly contrasting it with the notion that we grieve and then we go back to normal. You're saying you're saying something different. What? How did you realize that you needed to write about that? Well, because I've been interviewing motherless daughters and others who have lost loved ones for more than 25 years, and this is what I was hearing from them, and it's what I was experiencing myself. That it shade that that grief shades into something like the, a little softer, you know. It's different. It's more muted. You know, the hard edges get a little rounder, but it's still there, and it can be retriggered um, on sometimes by surprise. You know, what we call sneak attacks when a song comes on the radio, or you see someone wearing your brother's favorite hat, for example. And people were thinking, you know, people that I was meeting and, and clients that I must have gotten grief wrong, like I'm abnormal, because it's 22 years later. And sometimes I still cry about my dad dying when I was 19. And if that many people were having this experience, I didn't think it could be aberrant. Um, but they hadn't been encouraged to talk about it much. 
So once they were given permission to talk about it, and I, and I interviewed more than 80 people for this book, I started seeing these patterns and I thought, oh, we do need a name for what comes next because I just kept calling it grief when I was writing the book. This book began with a totally different title and I just kept calling it grief and it never felt right. I thought, wow, I need a better term for this. And I remember one day just driving down from my house, which is in a canyon, right down to Pacific Coast Highway thinking, what is the word for what comes after grief? I'm sure there's a word for this in German or French because they have you know more expansive vocabulary than English. And I started looking in other languages for the word, and I couldn't find one. Um, and then I just kept thinking, what comes after grief? What comes after grief? And I thought, oh, you know, just by default, let's call it the after grief. But it seems to have stuck. And now, you know, I'm, I'm watching it start to come up more in common conversation, which I think is great because I did think we needed a language to discuss that because otherwise, like you said, the dominant sort of cultural imperative is that we go through the intense grief phase and then we move on and we get over it somehow. And that did not seem to be the story for the vast majority of people that I was interviewing. So I think it was creating a misperception in the culture that after grief, there's a return to normality that does not seem to be how it happens. I mean, is that what you observe among your clients as well? They do move into it. It's a different phase. It's not active acute grief anymore, but it's not like everything's back to normal and they never want to talk about that person again or feel sad about it from time to time. Well, you know, it's funny because just this morning I was speaking to a patient about some of your ideas. I, 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 I told this patient about your book. I pulled it out of my bag and, and I showed it to this person because, and I, and I think what I said was that what I appreciated about your book is the way that you are giving a language to a to a phenomenon that there wasn't a language for before, particularly the idea that we revisit a loss, um, even losses that we have quote unquote processed already, right. that after 10 years pass, 20 years pass, and we become different people and have had different experiences, those losses necessarily acquire or are available for acquiring a new meaning. And he, he appreciated it, but I, I don't know that that I would have been able to even talk about it had it not been right. for your book. Well, there's quite a bit out there, and especially the work of Bob Niemeyer, who's brilliant, about meaning making after loss and how you know post-traumatic growth also is very heavily dependent on our ability to make meaning of what happened. But what I was discovering and what's been true for me as well is that the meaning I make of the losses of both my parents has changed quite a bit over time. And the way that I describe it is that the facts of a loss are immutable. They can't change. My mom will always have died in 1981 of breast cancer when she was 42 and I was 17. But those set of facts looked one way when I was 17. For one thing, 42 was like, oh, she's ancient. She went to college. She got married. She had children. You know, she did all these things that seemed so distant for me. I thought she's lived a full life. Mm -hmm. And then that shifted a lot for me, my relationship to those facts when I became a mother myself at 33. And I suddenly realized how much my mother had lost out on and how much I missed her in a whole new and different way. And boy, did my relationship to those facts change when I approached and turned and passed the age of 42, which is a very, very significant transition for any adults who lost parents when they were young. 
because I could realize how incredibly young she was and how much she had missed out on. And then I was grieving for her and what she lost even more than for me, the daughter who had lost a mother. And so the meaning that I was making of this kept changing over time. And I discovered that was true for a number of my interviewees as well. One of the most fascinating projects in this book, I don't know if you saw it in the introduction, I talk about it, was there was no research that I could locate that tracked people over decades after a loss. The longitudinal studies typically went for five to seven years, which is reasonable for funding and, you know, effort. But there was very, very little that tracked anyone for longer than that. And I really wanted to know how do people's stories change? How do their perspectives change? How do their relationship to those facts change over decades? Because quite a lot of us have been carrying a loss for that long. And I then could... I remember, I'm sorry. No, no, yes. go ahead, go ahead. Then I remembered that I had all the original transcripts from Motherless Daughters, which was published in 1994. I had interviewed 92 women for that book. And I managed to track down about, I think, 17 of them who were willing to be re-interviewed 26 years later. And we did the interviews again, and we could compare them side by side and see how their stories had changed and how their stories had remained the same. And it was a fascinating project. If I ever come up with the time, haha. To get a PhD, I think it's a great dissertation because it was just fantastic and fascinating to see um, the arc of their own development through telling their stories. Something that came to mind is that I imagine some of our listeners may be hearing this and, and feeling quite intimidated or bummed, thinking, oh gosh, but am I supposed to be constantly revisiting the loss of my mother, my father. I mean, why would why would I why would I do that? I need to move on. Um, that's only going to cause me pain. Can can you explain why you think that this revisiting losses from long ago is vital? Yes, you know, I heard that when the book first came out, people saying, "Are you telling us that we're going to be grieving forever?" Because I don't need to read a book about that. And that's not it at all. I'm saying it just. It changes and you will not, in fact, be grieving forever the way you grieved in the first year or two. It will turn into something different. And let's look at actually how that can be a very positive thing, because as our stories change and evolve and get richer, it contributes to our own personal development and growth. And um, it also can lead to what's known as post-traumatic growth, if we let it, which is the idea that the struggle between, you know, the, the friction between trauma or loss and um, our vision of the future, um, a positive vision of the future can, um, and you know, wanting to get past or get over or get through the emotions of grief can be a springboard for enormous personal growth. And that can be just becoming a, a better friend you know, to your cohorts or coworkers, or it can mean starting a foundation and raising millions of dollars for a medical cause. I mean, there's a whole, spectrum there of, of um, activities that people can engage in for post-traumatic growth. Sometimes it's you become committed to becoming a better parent, or sometimes it's that you decide to go back to work and become, go back to school and become a social worker. I mean, there's all different ways to engage in post-traumatic growth. But I think it's that revisiting and revising that allows us to keep evolving because we tend to get stuck in our stories and our stories become a part of our identity. If I had gotten stuck in the story that I carried at 17, I wouldn't be who I am today. At 17, I was 
very angry at my father. I was very angry at the medical establishment because it was 1981. My mother was very sick from the moment she was diagnosed and never told she was going to die. And her 1981, doctors still did this. They would get the test results and give them to the husband and let the husband decide what to tell the wife. Oh my gosh. Father chose not to tell her anything. So she and the kids in the family all thought she was getting better. They lied to her or he lied to her. And, wow. and so I was, you know, obviously furious and budding feminist that I was. I, I thought that, you know, the woman had been oppressed by the men. And I had a terrible relationship with my father for quite a while after that. But about 10 years later, I was interviewing my mother's friend, her motherless daughters. And this is what I mean about allowing a story to change. Because I was revisiting this story with her and telling her my version of events. And she said, Hope, I know I've known I knew your mom since she was 13 years old. And two things. Number one, I would not rule out the possibility that your parents either had a verbal or silent contract between them that he would get the news and give it to her because that's the kind of relationship they had and the kind of relationship that she agreed to. She said, number two, I think that by not telling her, he extended her life and you got her longer because I don't think she would have been strong enough to handle that news. I think she would have given up sooner. So you may have had a couple more months with her because she didn't know. And that radically changed my relationship to those facts because now they were much more nuanced than I'd been able to imagine at 17, but I was 27 and I could understand how that might have happened. So, and it changed my relationship with my father. It changed my knowledge of my mother. And it really uh, allowed me to feel more compassion and, and, you know, and get past the anger. So that's just an example for how being able to revisit my story, also by allowing new information into it, helped me so much. I can't imagine still being that 17-year-old. I'd be stuck in my story. You know, I lead motherless daughters retreats. And the number one reason why women come to the retreats, when we ask that first night, 26 women in a circle, the number one reason is I feel stuck. And I don't know how to get unstuck. And not all the time, but much of the time, they are stuck because the story they're telling themselves about the loss has no room to grow. And it's limiting them. The second reason that they come is because they are, they are a, a, approaching or experiencing a big life milestone. Like they're about to get married. They're about to have a baby. They're about to turn the age. Their mom was when she died, or maybe they just did. And they're really missing her. And that's what I call new old grief, which is when we experience an old loss in a new way. And they are looking for support and the company of other women who understand. So I'm going to say more than half of the women who come to the retreats come for one of those two reasons, and sometimes both. So new old grief, I, I, you talk about that in your book, but I want to make sure I understand it and, and our listeners understand it. It's, it's the old grief meaning it's grief related to the original loss, but grieve in a new way because, tell me if I'm understanding it right, me, because your understanding of the original loss has shifted, is, has changed. And so maybe you have new feelings about it. Am I getting it? That's exactly right. I divide it into new grief, old grief, new old grief. New grief meaning what we feel right after someone dies and it's very person specific to that person no longer being in our lives or that person having had to suffer. Old grief are those resurgences that come years later, like they triggers and send us back either to reprocess a part of the loss in the past or just have those feelings again. But new old grief is typically related to one-time events and 
often life transitions or what are known as age correspondence events, like turning the age your parent or sibling was when they died, or your child turning the age you were when that happened is another big one. And um, that's when we're experiencing an old loss in a new way. And the easiest way I can explain this is that there's no way at 17 years old, I could have grieved what it would have felt like to become a mother without a mother. I couldn't do that. I couldn't even grieve that when I was pregnant because that's, there are some types of grief that you cannot experience until you get to a certain moment. And it was after I brought my daughter home from the hospital and I was sitting with her in the bedroom with her in my arms that I really started grieving, that my mom wasn't there to see her first grandchild, that my daughter would never have that maternal grandmother in her life, and that I lacked the resources of being able to get the support and the advice and the knowledge from her. I felt so alone and adrift, but I had been soldiering through, you know, the pregnancy, I'm going to do this, I'm the motherless daughter's expert, I, you know, it's not going to hit me, duh, I'm just a person. And um, so that was, that was a really classic example of new old grief. I was experiencing that old grief in a new way. And I couldn't do it until that moment. This is this that is a point at which I want to come back with a question that comes to my mind, and I'm sure many people's minds, which is, well, but gosh, there you are again, in, in what is supposed to be a happy moment. And you're having to revisit your mother's death. What can you tell us more, though, about what that revisiting, that new old grief offers you? You know, how does it enhance your life? How does it enhance your experience? Well, let's look at the opposite, which is having those feelings start to come up and not expressing them. Now, we know that unexpressed or repressed grief can lead to all kinds of physical and mental ailments later. So right away, it's like preventive health to allow ourselves to feel those feelings when they come up. And, and I think it also just allows us to um, enrich our stories, but it often makes people feel very empathetic to others in a similar plight. I feel so honored and grateful to be part of the Motherless Daughters community, which is the most generous and open-minded community of readers I could ever hope to have. What they all wanna do is first heal themselves and then help others. And they're always reaching out to help others who are a little further behind on the path or helping girls or young adults maybe who haven't had these life transitions yet, wanting to be role models and advisors to them. So by doing that work, we can become that person to someone else later down the road. But I think it's, you know, the only alternative is to bottle it up or to pretend it doesn't hurt. I mean, there may be some people who can get through these transitions and it doesn't create a resurgence of grief. But for many, it does. And it's also really important at those times to get um, proper diagnosis. You know, off, it's very common for a motherless daughter to make the transition to motherhood with her first child and have a very strong grief reaction. But grief looks a lot like depression. And they will often go to an OBGYN or a GP and say, you know, here are my symptoms. You know, I've given birth, you know, six weeks ago, a month ago. And, um, they will often be treated with depression rather than grief. And that will make them feel better, but it will not really get to the core issue is that they're really missing their moms. And social support is really important at that time, motherless daughters and motherless mothers groups where you can share this with other women. I mean, th these motherless daughters retreats that I lead, and I don't mean to keep coming back to them, but they're such an extra they have such extraordinary ripple effects. Um, the women stay in touch, each group of usually 20 
22 to 26 women. They stay in touch. They have a Facebook page. They do WhatsApp groups. But they are now, because the retreat started in 2016, so it's five years later, they are now starting to accompany each other through these life transitions. We've seen weddings that they've attended together, you know, shown up for their sisters. We've seen births, you know, where they're giving each other advice because the mom isn't there. One of the most poignant stories I heard was um, one young woman who had come to a retreat was getting married and she was in the bridal room before the wedding in her gown thinking, I can't do this without my mom. And then two women from her retreat group who were coming to the wedding showed up and went in to see her beforehand. And then she thought, okay, they're here, I can do this. There was another story where a woman was shopping for a wedding dress and she just put on the Facebook page, I'm feeling so sad. My friend who was going to go shopping for a wedding dress with me can't make it. She just canceled. She's sick and now I have to go alone. Can you all think of me today? And right away, two women in driving distance said, oh, girlfriend, you're not going alone. Give us the address of the store. And they met her there and they shopped for her wedding dress with her. So that kind of social support, I think, is really valuable and necessary for some people as well, because this is so hard to go through alone. Sure. Do you think, and you know, this question may sound weird, um, or, or, or reductive, but do you think that loss of this kind can actually make you a better person? Well, we know that it can increase empathy and compassion. I mean, we can really understand what other people going through deep loss have experienced. Um, it can make us more self-reflective. So I think the answer to that is, you know, yes, but it's a choice. You have to give yourself permission to have those feelings. And some people just don't, don't, don't feel safe enough to release those feelings. Maybe they don't have the social support or, or they were so traumatized that first they need to get counseling for the trauma before they can get to the grief. Because if you've experienced a traumatic loss, like a suicide or a homicide or an accident, especially if you witnessed it or were part of it, um, every time you try to get to the grief, you're gonna bump up against the trauma. So the trauma needs to be stabilized first. And see, I'm working with women and men now decades later who never got that and so have been having trauma responses every time they you know, feel an upsurgence of grief. That happened to me for the first seven years because there was so little known in the 1980s about trauma-informed therapy. And it took you know, a, a smart therapist you know, to really help me stabilize the trauma before I could then grieve for my mother. But for the first seven years, it was just trauma response. Every time someone said, is your mother going to be here? I would have a somatic response. You know, my limbs would go cold and start shaking and my heart would start beating really fast and my brain would get muddied. And um, it took me a long time to realize I'm having a somatic trauma response just from a, a simple question like, is your mother going to be here today? Yeah. Now, in the book, you, you talk about the five stages of grief and you sort of debunk the myth that grief proceeds according in a linear fashion according to these stages, um, which if people uh, are not aware of it, it's a very popular um, or popularized concept of how grief proceeds. And you offer your own model, which you call the rings of grief. Can, can you talk to us about your model and how it differs from the five stages of grief model? Right. Well, first about the five stages of grief, I am by, by far not the only person to debunk them. Even Elizabeth Kubler-Ross herself, who created these stages, uh, they were the stages of dying. Mm -hmm. You know, she was observing terminally ill patients grieving the end of the loss of their life. And then those stages got transferred to the mourners 
who were left behind. Even she talks about how grief doesn't happen in stages like that. I mean, maybe for some people it might because it's such an individual process, but not for the majority. Yet it was such a seductive model because it said, oh, here, you can go through these four stages and then you end at acceptance and you're done. So the media took it and ran with it. And now that's, you know, a lot of people still think grief happens in that kind of linear, sequential way. But in my experience, grief is more like an ebb and a flow or an expansion or a contraction. And that's what I call the rings of grief. And, you know, it's, it's very simple to visualize. Think of like the Target store logo, that bullseye, right? There's a circle in the middle and then there's two concentric circles further out. And I think of that circle in the middle as this red hot core of grief. That's the acute phase I was talking about earlier. And then the middle ring is that ring where we move out into back into our everyday activities. And occasionally there will be a trigger or we'll have a moment where we shrink back into the middle, that acute phase. And we have those feelings again, because that song came on the radio or it's our mother's, you know, the the anniversary of our mother's death or our father's birthday um, or what would have been our siblings graduation. And then we go back out into the middle ring again. And this is um, actually very much aligned with what's known as a dual process model of grief, which says we move between grief related activities and life-related activities, so to speak. So, you know, we're going in and out. But then I think of a third ring, which is the ring of growth, and that's post-traumatic growth. And it's the most expansive of all. And it's out in there, I think, where we find meaning and purpose, and we put it into action in the world. Now, we can still shrink back into the circle in the middle when there's another birthday or anniversary or life transition event. But it's I, I think, you know, I work with my clients to try to help them expand into that third ring, of growth because loss as tragic and as painful as it is can be an incredibly oppor- incredible opportunity for personal growth and and there's so much research that supports that too i'm sure you're aware of it so just to be clear are, are you saying that perhaps for the rest of our lives if we've experienced a loss then we are likely to move in and out of feeling those intense, acute feelings, to vacillate between that and, and moments when we're actually able to, to feel the loss in a way that's growth promote, promoting. Absolutely. And I think we shouldn't be afraid of that. And in fact, we shouldn't pathologize it and we should normalize it. I think it makes our lives rich and complex. And it reminds us of how much we loved the person that was lost. And why would we want to let go of that? And sometimes the memory of that love is going to come with laughter and happiness, and sometimes it's going to come with pain. I don't think we should be afraid of that. I think we're a culture that pathologizes sadness, but sadness seems to me to be a really normal and healthy human emotion. And we can learn how to companion each other through our sadness and support each other without absorbing it or taking on someone else's sadness. You know, If you can have that boundary and just be there as a, an active and compassionate listener, if we could all do that for each other, I think we'd actually be a healthier and much happier culture as a whole. You know, I know that this book is focused on early losses, but I I wanted to hear your thoughts on a different kind of loss that I have some personal experience with. And I haven't been very public about this, but four years ago, my own mother was diagnosed with early onset dementia. And since then, I feel like I have been going through a very bizarre, confusing kind of grief because... On the one hand, I've been losing the mother that I've known all my life, yet I sometimes feel bad about grieving because she is still alive. So then I think that I ought to enjoy my time with her as she is. 
And since I imagine a lot of people listening now are going through a similar thing, I wonder what insights or experience you would share with people who are going, who are grieving someone who hasn't yet passed away. Right. Well, it's an ambiguous, what's known as an ambiguous loss, because that person is still physically present, but they are not available to you in the way that you're accustomed to. So there is a loss of that relationship, even though they may physically still be here. I heard a couple of shoulds in what you were saying. So the first thing I would say is that we all have to drop the shoulds because there are no shoulds in grieving, really. It's just what it's like for us. There may be someone else, you know, who had a difficult relationship with their mom. I've heard this story, actually. And then when their mom has dementia, suddenly she's sweet and welcoming to them for the first time. And they can have a relationship with her that they couldn't have before. So these experiences are all over the map. But what you're talking about is known as an ambiguous loss because it's not a a loss in the physical world, but also a secondary loss. Because in addition to losing um, your mom in the, in the, the, the relationship with your mom as you always knew it, you're also missing access to her memories, her ability to validate memories of your own, you know, having her as an advisor or as um, that person who might care more about what happens to you than anyone else. Um, So there are a lot of secondary losses that come with her withdrawing mentally from as a result of the dementia. Um, What I do, what I do experience is that when the dementia gets so advanced, sometimes the physical death is still very emotional because the new normal has been to have a mom with dementia that we're caretaking. Um, so there's a loss of that role in our lives, but also a form of relief that, you know, she's not suffering from this ailment any longer. So it's a more, can be a more complicated, you know, way to lose someone, certainly, because there are so many attendant and subsidiary losses going on at the same time. It's not quite as cut and dry as losing someone in the physical world, but it is absolutely a form of loss. I and mean, then we just talked about multiple losses. Does, is that ringing true for you? It, it, it is, you know, the thing that, um, it jumps out at me is I, I take your note, of course, about the use of shoulds. Um, you know, that made me, it, but the, I think the reason why I, and I'm sure many people think in terms of shoulds and shouldn'ts is because I, I don't know. I think that there are times when, I've, I'm finding myself um, maybe maybe in my grief, uh, living in in my memories and in what I wish would have been in a way that takes me out of the present moment. You know what I'm saying? Where it's not that I'm saying I shouldn't feel sad, but sometimes I wonder if there are ways in which grieving too much or in a certain way can take us away from what what is and the possibilities that the present moment holds. Does, does, that, does that make sense? Absolutely. And see, what I hear behind that, and this, I often see this one when I'm working with clients who talk about, I should do this. First, we're unpacking, is that a cultural message that you've absorbed? And is it really true? And sometimes that's it and it's not. But sometimes they feel they should do something because they want to remain aligned with their personal ethics system of ethics and values. And everyone's is different. And what I hear you saying in that is you feel like your personal value system or ethics system is that you want to be able to be very present, that you see value in that. Yeah. Yeah. And so therefore you personally feel like you should do that to remain aligned with your values and ethics. And when we unpack it that way, shoulds are fine because it's a reminder to us of that's a reminder to us of how we want to live in our own integrity. But when we are doing it because we feel that that's how everyone else thinks that we should act, or there's a there's a cultural imperative to all do things a certain way and make grief a one size fits all experience, 
that's when I try to guide people away from should. So yes, I thank you. I should have I should have been <laughs> more, <laughs> more explicit about that. Does that does that it does. It does. I, I also wonder about the concept of letting go, which you really take to task in the earlier part of the book, but towards the end, you talk about what you call a good kind of letting go. What is a good kind of letting go? Well, I think, uh, well, let's just talk about letting go in, in general, because that is a cultural imperative. You know, you've got to let go of your grief. You have to let go of your attachment to this person. And that's why the introduction to this book is called Letting Go of Letting Go. Um, because we want what, where grief theory has moved. And really, you know, the cultural messages we get are only a reflection of what dominant grief theories have percolated down into society. And the dominant, you know, grief theory right now that has, is in pop, that's popular is a relational model where we find ways to stay connected to the people who've died and keep their memories alive and tell stories about them and pass that legacy on to younger generations and so letting go is it stands in opposition to that, you know, to finding ways to stay connected. Um, the good kind of letting go, I think, is um, releasing the harmful aspects of grief, you know, the parts of our story that are keeping us stuck. It's giving ourselves permission to change and grow. And um, I'm trying to remember, to be honest, what I wrote about the good Part of letting go. If you remember what page it's on, I can read that. <laughs> oh, you know, I, I don't have it. I guess it's, I don't. A, it's a subhead in the book. I remember yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of letting go, and I think it's about letting go of um, the trauma if we can get trauma-informed therapy. I mean, there are pieces of a loss that would be to our benefit to work through and leave behind, but not the person or the love or the memory itself. That's all from the beginning of the 20th century. It dates that far back to um, psychoanalysis and also when the, the, the double punch of World War I and the Spanish flu pandemic, believe it or not, when so many people were dying so quickly and so closely together and people couldn't congregate in person for public health reasons or loved ones died overseas and were buried there during the war, um, they, we just had to change all the rituals that were comforting and familiar to people in Western society. And that's when the whole concept of just doing the funeral and then moving on and letting go had its genesis. But um, it did not serve an entire century of mourners particularly well, to be honest. I think that staying connected to our loved ones in certain ways is um, a healthier way to be able to move forward. And it, it creates continuity across the generations too. Well, Hope, I, I want to thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. We are almost out of time, but before we go, you want to tell us what you're working on these days? Sure, I'll be happy to. Um, I've, well, like everyone else, shifted from in-person retreats, though they are coming back this fall, into online offerings. And um, two of the most exciting online offerings that I've got coming up are every Tuesday, there's a motherless daughters community call. And um, we've got generally 60 or 70 women per week on the call talking about a different topic every week or hearing a guest speaker and having time to share their stories and find other women whose stories are similar to theirs. So that's every Tuesday night at 5 p.m. Pacific time and 8 p.m. East Coast time and it's at motherlessdaughters.com. I'm also going to be offering my first writing workshop for motherless daughters starting in September who want to write their stories as a form of self-expression and healing. 
And, um, and then the After Grief is coming out in paperback in the spring, and I'll be doing a lot of promotion around that. That's exciting. I, I am curious to know how the shift to virtual meetings, virtual gatherings, how, how has that affected the retreats and how, has, yeah. how have you all adapted? Well, I will say that's how the community calls came about because the magic of a retreat when you've got women or men, anyone sitting in a room together, you know, being able to have dinner together, um, reaching out and just, you know, like handing someone a tissue or, or putting your hand on their shoulder for comfort that can't be replicated in an online retreat when everyone is alone in their house after they close the laptop. So we haven't gone too far into trying to replicate the retreats online, but we've looked for other forms of support we can offer. And so the Tuesday calls are one of those examples. And we've got women from all over the world, which we could never otherwise have. We have women staying up until two in the morning in Germany to be on the call or one in the morning in Ireland. We have women coming in from Australia on the next day in their morning. We have a woman from Chile, a woman from Russia, all over Canada. So it's an opportunity to create this global community that I would not have been able to experience if not for Zoom and the internet and COVID. So it's one of the few good things I think that has come out of that year. I, I want to make sure our listeners know how to get more information. You said it's motherlessdaughters.com? Motherlessdaughters.com and also hopeedelman.com. Okay, thank you. And I want to remind my listeners as well uh, that I'm speaking today to Hope Edelman about her new book, The Aftergrief, Finding Your Way Along the Long Arc of Loss. Hope, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Eugenio. It's been a pleasure.